Good morning. Welcome. Let us stand here from God's word from Psalm 29. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We hear a lot about angels this time of year, how they came to herald the news of a newborn king. Well, we have the privilege to share in that same purpose, to announce to the world a Savior has come and to call all to come and adore him. Angels from the realms of Come 
Yes, that's what we've come to do this morning, to worship our King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Be seated. And good morning, church. How are you? Good. Merry Christmas. We're glad that we are here together for this gathering of Desert Springs Church. And if you are new or you are visiting with us this morning, whether in this room or you're watching online, we are especially glad that you have decided to spend this time with us. I don't know why you're here, but I know that God does. And I know that God will speak to you. He has things to say to you if you will listen with a willing heart, with ears that are open to receive this amazing news about Jesus and his coming. If you are new, you're visiting with us, we would love to get to know you better. If you're in this room after the service, we'll have some pastors up here up front. We would love to talk to you, pray with you, answer any questions that you might have about Jesus. If you are watching this online, you can email us, info at dscabq.com. And again, we would be happy to set up a time to talk to you or just correspond over email. But we are here for you. We want to help you learn about this gospel. We want to help you get connected to our church or to another good church in this city. So please reach out to us. So as 2020 draws to a close, we as the leaders of this church have been taking some time to pray and discuss what our vision is for 2021. And one of the things that kept on coming up was that we want 2021 to be filled with a lot more intentionality as a church praying together. So we've got a lot of really good ideas that you'll be hearing about in the coming weeks and months about how we can pray together as a church that I'm very excited about, but one thing that we are going to start right away is to actually just make better use of a tool that we already have, which is our membership directory. So I, I don't know about you, but me, I struggle to pray consistently. And so I'm always really helped when I can have a tool that can structure my prayer and and make it more of a system that I can pray through. And our membership directory can be that. That's actually how our elders use that already, as we pray for all of you in our elders' meetings. We just pray through every name in that membership directory. We want to help our whole church make a better use of that tool. So at our members' meeting in January, we'll be giving you a bit more instruction about that, about how you too can use our membership directory as a prayer tool to pray for one another in this church. But before we get there, I need your help. This is very important. Members of this church, everybody listening? Okay, here's how a membership directory is supposed to work it has your name and your picture. And a lot of people in our church don't have their picture in that directory. And that's not your fault. We're kind of, you know, figuring things out as we go along. Some of you, especially if you're newer to our church, you've actually sat down and had your picture taken by one of our folks on staff here. But maybe if you've been here a while or you just missed that, we just don't have your picture in the directory. And as somebody that's new to this church, I'm still trying to learn all of your names. It's a little frustrating to go through that directory, see a name, and then there's just like a funny outline of a head that says, no picture available. So I still pray for you, but I don't really know who I'm praying for, okay? So here's what I'm asking, is that you would send us your picture, okay? This is a new thing. We're not going to take your picture. We're asking for you to send us a picture of your pretty face. And it doesn't have to be a glamour shot, okay? But it just needs to be a good resolution of your face so that we'll see your name under there. You don't have to crop it, okay? We'll take care of that. Please don't include your dog. Just a, it can be your Facebook profile picture, it can be your Christmas card picture, we just need your picture. Now, if you don't know whether or not we have your picture, just send us your picture, okay? Send it where? Send it to the same email, info at 
dscabq.com. We want every member to do this so that we can pray for you better and you can pray for one another better, okay? Send us your picture, info at dscabq.com. And as we think about praying together as a church, we have to remember that there's not a better way to do that than when we are gathered together on a Sunday morning. So let's pray right now, okay? God, we think about those angels that were singing when you brought everything into existence, the angels that sang to the shepherds when Jesus was born, angels that we believe are even singing around your throne right now. Lord, help us to join in their song. Even if we can't sing together as loudly as we wish that we could, Lord, help us to worship you with that same heart, with that same spirit, to glorify you. Be glorified, we pray, in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and join in that angel's song. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sinners reconciled Joyful all ye nations rise Join the triumph of the skies With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born rejoicing in. Well, such a grand announcement for such a little king born in such a little town. And like us, he was weak and helpless. But at the same time, God and Lord of all, what a glorious paradox we consider. Let us worship. Once in royal David's city, 
Pray with me one more time. Oh God, what a marvelous mystery. You are coming 
and the flesh, your incarnation. You who are God and Lord of all, come to earth from heaven. It's amazing. You came in weakness. You came in loneliness. You came in poverty and suffering for us so that we would be healed, so that we'd be forgiven of our sins, that we would follow you into eternal life. Thank you, God. And as Christmas Day approaches, we ask you that you would help focus our hearts even more on this truth. Help us to rejoice in Jesus, especially when there are so many other distractions. As we're tempted to give our attention to material things like the gifts that we have or the gifts that we don't have. Or to think about our relationships, who we're going to see or who we're not going to see. Or to give our attention to our own comforts about the time that we get off or about the time that we don't get off. God, these things can dominate our thoughts and, and these aren't bad things to care about. Like we're just saying, we know that you, you feel all of our sadness and you share with us and all of our gladness. And so, God, we do pray for those that will, will be sad. Lord, that you would comfort them by your spirit. Comfort them. But God, help all of us to remember that these things, as good as they are, as hard as they are, they are infinitely less important than this one glorious thing that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we all would confess that we would consider ourselves the foremost, the chief of sinners. God, we've sinned against you. Even this week, even this morning, we have sinned against you. And and our minds, we have sinned against you with what we've said. We've sinned against you with our actions. God, we've sinned against you by the, the things that we haven't done. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done. And we're sorry. We're sorry that we haven't obeyed your law. We're sorry that we haven't loved others more. We are not righteous. So please forgive us. On the basis of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners, forgive us. And remind us again of the love and the acceptance and the grace that is found only in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in this season we pray that as so many people around us, our family and our coworkers and our neighbors, as they're all seeing these familiar images and they're hearing these familiar songs that praise and glorify your Messiah, Jesus God, we pray that you would help them to hear those words on the radio and believe what they're saying. We pray that you would turn hearts to worship Jesus, to accept Jesus as their Savior. Lead them to forsake the things in this life that they love. Lead them to recognize that they have no righteousness in themselves. God, we pray that you you would use our time together this morning for that very purpose. We pray for Pastor Ryan as he opens up your word to show us, Jesus, that you would operate through your word with power. That what Ryan says would be true about you and that what we think about you would be true about you and that we would, we would see Jesus, some for the first time. And God, as we go out from this gathering, as your church, we pray that you would help use us to accomplish this mission. Embolden us and give us opportunities 
to be those who are quick to proclaim that Jesus is Christ the King and to beg people to hurry, to haste, to bring him, Lord, glory. Amen. Let us stand and continue to consider this Jesus. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleepy who angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds washed our Lord Jesus, you are with us to the end, saving, helping, keeping, and loving us to the end. Lord, to that end, would you show us your goodness and glory in the pages of your scriptures today. May we see your grace and glory afresh. May we be changed by it. May you be glorified to show us more of yourself today. 
we pray, Lord Jesus, in your strong and saving name. Amen. You could be seated. Well, that old Christmas carol asks, what child is this? What child is this? That question can be answered in part with the words from the angel to Mary in Luke 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Or with the words of the angel to the shepherds in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Or from the gospel writers, various introductions to this Jesus, like in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or, as we've been doing the last few weeks, we could go to Jesus' own testimony about who he is and why he came. And what his coming means for us. What's the significance of it? What did Jesus say about these things? How did he attest to his own life and its purpose? Why did he say that he came? And as we've seen in these past couple of weeks, these purpose statements from Jesus about why he came, they can be somewhat surprising. They can show us an angle of Jesus' life and ministry that perhaps we haven't seen as important as it should be. As we saw last week from Mark 1, that he came to preach good news. This is one of the key reasons why Jesus came, to preach. Well, this week we'll consider Luke 5. He came to call sinners. Not the righteous. He came to call sinners, not the righteous. As we said last week and the week before, these purpose statements from Jesus may not feel very Christmassy because they don't come from one of the birth narratives, but they really get to the heart of Christmas. They really get to the heartbeat of Christ himself. They tell us why he came in Jesus' own words. And this purpose statement in Luke 5, well, it is uniquely personal for the reader. It's about who he came for, not just why he came, but who he came for. What kind of people did Jesus have in mind when he left heaven for earth? Did Jesus come for people like me? It's uniquely personal. And Luke 5 not only answers those crucial questions, but does so within a story. It's really a conversion story, how one becomes a follower of Jesus. It not only tells us who Jesus came for, but what it looks like when he comes for them. Look down in your Bibles or up on the screens to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if you're new to Desert Springs Church, like other churches, we take a passage of God's word per week and we talk about it. We walk through it bit by bit over an extended period of time. And so I have nothing to offer you today that God's word doesn't say to us all and say to us directly. So we'll spend some time just walking through this great and very rich story. Four C's or four C words will will help us break down the contours of the passage. And the first C is call, an unexpected call. Verses 27 and 28. And I think that's the right word for what Jesus is doing with this guy Levi in these verses. He doesn't invite him on a stroll. It's something stronger than that. But he doesn't physically force him to do anything either. It's both authoritative and volitional. Follow me. Jesus was here taking on the role of a teacher. In these days, both Roman philosophers and Jewish rabbis would have students, disciples, followers. And those followers would follow their master's teaching and even follow them as they taught. And so if we're used to hearing about Jesus doing this sort of thing, having disciples going around and teaching and his disciples learning from him, then we might overlook how audacious this would seem, especially early on in Jesus' ministry. He doesn't have the proven credentials or position that Jewish religious leaders would often have in these days. He's not a, a proven and aged philosophical teacher like Aristotle or Plato. So who does this man think he is? A young man around the age of 30 without professional credentials and perhaps without much of an established relationship with this one to whom he calls and says, follow me. What does he think is going to come of that? Well, he's already done something similar in Mark's account of Jesus' life. It was at the beginning of chapter 5 that Jesus called Peter, James, and John, three fishermen. And Jesus said to them in verse 10, From now on you will be catching men, fishers of men. You were fishers of fish, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And the next verse says, they left everything and followed him. Well, if it's surprising that Jesus would recruit fishermen to be the first three among his top 12 disciples, it should be shocking and even scandalous that Jesus would next go after a tax collector. A tax collector. You've got to understand what tax collection tax collectors and all that, what it signified in these days. 
So save your IRS jokes for another time because this stuff is different. We may not like paying taxes today. We may think the government takes too much of our money. We may vote for someone who will lower taxes. We may all cringe if we ever get a letter from the IRS saying that we're being audited. But tax collecting in the first century Roman world was, it was far worse. It was an inherently corrupt system. A tax collector would agree with Rome for a set amount of tax collecting that he would turn over to Rome. And as for that tax man's personal compensation, well, that was anything that he got that was above what he agreed to get for Rome. That's a kind of system that breeds abuse and corruption. Imagine if traffic cops in Albuquerque were getting their salary solely from the traffic citations that they wrote and that there was no limit to how much they could make off those citations. You and I would be getting pulled over a whole lot more. Well, these days, because of things like that, taxes varied widely from one tax man to another, and from month to month or week to week, depending on that tax man's needs or desires for money. A mob's shakedown of a small business was probably more predictable and reasonable than the Roman tax system, if you can call it a system at all. There was no system for appeal if you thought that you were being treated unfairly. Again, Rome didn't care what happened on the street level as long as they got their money. So tax collectors were hated, despised, crooked. They were all wealthy. They lived extravagantly. And they partied wildly. It was just part of their culture. And all that is enough for the average Roman citizen to hate tax collectors. But if you're Jewish in this Roman world, you have extra reason to not like tax collectors. Tax collectors would be the street-level representation of Rome's tyranny and subjugation of your promised land. Right? If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the Romans' occupation of the promised land was massively problematic. And these tax collectors fund that Roman occupation of your God-given land in those days. And then add one more layer to the difficulty of this scene. It's that some of these tax collectors were themselves Jewish. And those people had completely sold out their Jewish brethren and the cause for Jerusalem. They'd sold it out for money and power. They were traitors. They were worse than the enemy because they knew better. It'd be like a a Jew in Nazi Germany siding with the Nazis and supporting their cause. 
Well, you can guess, guess where this is going in Luke 5 with this guy named Levi. He's one of these worst of worst kind of tax collectors, a Jewish one. His given name, Levi, identifies him with the Levite tribe of the high priests. This is clearly a guy who has gone far astray from the faith. He is as unlikely a candidate to follow Jesus as anyone. But this is whom Jesus calls and he follows. Leaving everything, it says in verse 28, he rose and followed him. He left his tax booth. He left his vocation. He left his possessions. He followed Jesus. And by the way, we find out later on that this Levi is also known as Matthew, as in the first gospel account writer, the Matthew of the gospel according to Matthew. He wrote the first book of the New Testament. So we know that this call from Jesus, this following of Jesus, it stuck. It was the real deal. It was life-changing. So none of us should think that any of us are outside the reach of this Jesus. None of us should think that we're too far away from Jesus or too far off, too bad to be reached by this Jesus. This guy is as bad as it gets. You, friend, you're not beyond the reach of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you did last night. God's grace is greater than our sin. The Apostle Paul later on would be proof of that. And here, Matthew, Levi, is proof of that. Christian, you should be encouraged as you pray for a friend, a loved one who's not yet a Christian. You've told them about the gospel many times. You've invited them to come to this Jesus so many times. They're so stubborn. It seems to just bounce off their foreheads, go over their heads. It seems to just rile them up. Remember, no one is outside the reach of this Jesus. You don't know when his words, follow me, will ring in their head for the first time in a saving and real supernatural way. If you're not yet a Christian, you should be open to the possibility that this might hit you like that today. I don't know if it will, but it might. Every Christian was once not a Christian And as they heard the gospel, at least for a time, they didn't get it, didn't get it, didn't get it, didn't want it, didn't want it, didn't think they needed it, didn't think it applied to them. And then the penny dropped, and they followed Jesus. Perhaps the same will be for you today. And that would be an unexpected call. Secondly, there is a great celebration in verse 29. Levi's new changed life of following Jesus begins with a party, a party. And it seems to serve a couple of different purposes. The party is, of course, celebration of this newfound life in Jesus. There's a great feast in his house that Levi's hosting. 
But the celebration is also an introduction to Jesus for his old friends. It says in that verse, a large company of tax collectors and others were there as well. So take note of Levi's natural instincts as a new follower of Christ. It's thankfulness for Jesus, throwing a party in his honor, and it's what we call as Christians evangelism, wanting others to buy in on this because, well, how could we do otherwise? We shouldn't think that this is some sort of wild party like the tax collectors would often hold. This is Levi. It's Levi's house. It's Levi's party. He's a changed man. So it's not quite like his parties of old, we can surmise. But this is also still a curious scene. Because here is this Jesus, a new religious leader, a a religious teacher. And he's at a party made up of some wild Famously wicked characters. Should he be there? Well, we'll come back to that in a bit. But let's tuck this away for now. We should celebrate when one becomes a Christian. It's not just here in this passage. It's almost everywhere in the Bible. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us that heaven's angels rejoice when one sinner comes to faith in Christ. There's a party in heaven for everyone who believes in Jesus. In Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son is told. And remember, the prodigal son went away and did all kinds of bad. But he came home and the father threw him a party. The older brother was mad. You never throw parties for me. But the father says, my son was gone. He was practically dead, and now he's home. How can we not celebrate and be glad? Isn't this what we'll find in heaven? Isn't this what we see at the end of Revelation? A marriage supper, like a wedding feast. We're united to Jesus, our groom, our spiritual groom. We, his bride, and we'll eat. We'll celebrate. J.C. Ryle, he was a a bishop in Liverpool in the 19th century, a pastor, you could say. He has some works uh, that comment on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, called his expository thoughts. I saw just this morning that some of them are free to Kindle on Amazon.com. Everyone who does Kindle should go take advantage of that today. Because here's what you'll find, things like this. He said, nothing can happen to a man which it ought to be such an occasion of joy as his conversion. It is far more important than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from life to death. It's being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families. So let us, with Levi, consider every fresh conversion as a cause for great rejoicing. 
Never ought there to be such joy, gladness, and congratulation as when our sons or daughters or brothers or sisters or friends are born again and brought to Christ. Becoming a Christian is worthy of our celebration. Being a Christian ongoingly is worthy of our celebration. The Christian life isn't just celebration. It's not all roses. It's not all smiles. Now, we're to weep with those who weep, but we're to keep rejoicing as well. The, the joy of the Christian life is that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit being within us produces joy. We should never get used to our salvation. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out on mission, and they come back all excited, and they say, the demons are subject to us, and, and we've healed many who were sick. And then Jesus says, rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in this above all, that you're saved, forgiven, right with God. Never get used to this, whatever else might come your way, worthy of your joy and celebration. Keep rejoicing that your names are written in heaven. And as you celebrate, introduce others to this thing worth celebrating don't we instinctively promote to others things that we're interested in or passionate about? You might tell a friend what you're watching currently on Netflix, and you, you go into great detail. And they say, so I should watch it? And you go, eh, I don't know, it's pretty good. You know, skip season five and six, that's a lull, but it gets good again in season seven. Yeah, you should watch it. You commend it to them. And that's a slightly above average Netflix series. How much more your NFL team or this vocation you're passionate about or, or, or this political candidate that you will like next or that sort of thing. We all instinctively promote to others things that we're remotely excited about. How much more should we do the same with Jesus if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be offended that Christians would do this. We'd expect you to do the same. You got something good? Tell us. We've got something to share with you. In fact, we can't help it. Acts 4, remember there, the disciples say, we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. We're commanded to do it. And let's not cut ourselves off from the world as we do it. Let's not be too selective about who we say this to. When we become Christians, we're at a really prime opportunity to tell people who used to be our friends who are still not yet Christians. As we continue in the Christian life, sometimes our social spheres become more Christian, less non-Christian. That's inevitable. That's part of it. You're here today. We're, we're mostly Christians in this room. And yet, that can't be our bread and butter. That can't be the meat and potatoes of our social spheres because we have to be like Jesus. Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we would be in the world, though not of it. We're to be different, yes, but not 
distant. No. Now, in days of COVID, with the regulations we're under, it's harder to apply these very principles. Simply put, you can't throw parties right now like you used to be able to. But this should be our instinct, and this should be our outlook. We're looking for it. We're looking for those who need him most. Thirdly, though, there's a predictable concern with all this. Verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If we've been getting excited about following Jesus and celebrating Jesus and promoting Jesus, like, like we have been from talking of our passage, we've got to understand why some in those days wouldn't be excited about these things. We've got to try to understand the Pharisees' concern here. It's first a concern of purity, but it's also one about acceptance of other people. The concern regarding purity that they have is partly rooted in the Bible, the Old Testament. The Old Testament had laws for what is clean and what is unclean. Things, places, People, they can at any time be categorized as clean or unclean. It's like there's a green light or red light over any person, place, or thing. Is it clean or unclean? If it's unclean, you got to make it clean. If it's unclean, you better make it clean before it starts passing off more uncleanness. And so you can imagine a tax collector's party It's everywhere. Uncleanness, what did they touch? They touched everything. It's everywhere. This is like a a COVID party, but masks won't do any good. It's just everywhere. They've touched everything. Everything's unclean. So this is a concern about purity partly rooted in the Old Testament Bible, which isn't relevant for the New Testament era that Jesus came to bring, by the way. Now, some of their concern also grew out of man-made regulations that they added to the Scriptures. It's as if the Scriptures said, don't jump off this cliff. That's reasonable. And people like Pharisees said, okay, let's take ten steps back and we will draw a line there just to play it safe. Well, even better, let's go a hundred steps back. Let's draw a line there. That's even safer. Okay, that might be fine for your parenting when you're visiting the Grand Canyon, but, but when you associate that 10-foot line or that 100-foot line with the Bible, with what God said, you're in trouble. And that's what they did. They had a concern not just about purity, but one of acceptance. You see, meals in those days were not just means of getting food for your nourishment, nor were they just meals for tasting things that taste good. That's how we approach meals, quite honestly. They approached them more socially than we do. Meals were fellowship, and meals signaled acceptance. It was green light. A meal with someone is to say, you're good, we're good, it's good, and it's good with God. A New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg, He says, these meals help to draw boundaries 
Only those who in some sense belonged were to be included. The total outsider was not welcome. Eating and drinking with someone were signs of a properly functioning life according to the ground rules of the Mosaic law. It signaled something about the people with whom one approves. So the Pharisees' concern, it's a predictable one. You could see it coming if you know much of the Old Testament and if you know much of these Pharisees. But it's not a legitimate concern, especially in light of who Jesus is and what he brings. Listen to this in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 25, verse 6. He said, that the Lord one day will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. In other words, when God shows up, when Messiah comes and all that he brings, when that comes, there'll be a party. And a party for all the nations. All the peoples will feast. That's why Jesus in Luke 5 goes on to give that illustration of new wine in new wineskins. He says you put new wine in those old wineskins and the old wineskins will burst. And that's what was happening with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It's sort of bursting apart. And Jesus is putting new wine, himself, his ways, into new wineskins. So it's not a legitimate concern in light of who Jesus is and what he brings. Now, fourthly, we come to a decisive contrast. A contrast. Here, Jesus corrects the Pharisees' concern with a contrast, a vivid, stark contrast of two kinds of people. Verse 31, those who are well, Jesus answered them, they have no need of a physician but those who are sick do. He's, of course, not speaking in physical terms. He's not speaking of physical physicians or, or physical sickness. He's speaking in spiritual terms. And he's saying here that it, it's not that, that everyone, sorry, it's, it's not that anyone actually is spiritually healthy, even though he's referring to those who don't need a physician, those who are well, that's referring to those who think that they're well. We're all spiritually sick, according to the Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just keep going astray. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all their offspring is born going astray. And not all of us are as wicked as we possibly could be, doesn't mean some of us don't do some good. We do. But it means that sin has bent and broken our wills and our lives in every corner. Sin is everywhere. Now, some know that to be the case. Some have come to believe that that's true for themselves. They've come to the end of themselves, and that is who Jesus came for. Jesus, the great physician, came into this world for those who know they need a spiritual doctor. He came to save those who know they need a Savior. 
If I offered you the cure for Rudiman's disease, and I offered it to you without cost, you'd probably say, I don't know if I've been diagnosed with Rudiman's disease. I don't even know what that is, and it sounds made up. So whatever medicine you got there, I'm going to pass. Thanks. Why don't you go find someone who says that they have Rudiman's disease? Which, by the way, I did make that up. But if you know that you have cancer, and you've seen the MRI, and you've talked to the doctor, and you can feel it in your bones, and it's getting worse, and I offer to you a cure for cancer at no cost, you would likely take it with urgency and with thankfulness. If you don't think you have a spiritual cancer, then you've got no need for Jesus. Many people hear that Jesus came as a Savior, and he came for those who are sick, and they're offended. And if you're offended by that this morning, then you're not ready for Jesus, at least not yet. Or if you think that you have a kind of spiritual malady or shortcoming that simply needs a tune-up, you're not ready for Jesus. If you think that you need spiritual advice, you're looking for that, Jesus isn't the answer. If you think you need spiritual supplements, like many of us take various pills in the morning, if you think you need new spiritual exercises, Jesus isn't the one for you. He's not that kind of savior. Go, keep your routine, your regimen, and tire yourself out on other so-called saviors. And when you're tired, when you're weary, then you're ready you see, you can come to realize that you're a sinner in need of grace either because everyone knows you're a sinner. You've come to the end of yourself. You, you see trouble of your own doing all over your life. Someone like that is ready for Jesus so often. But there are also those who they really have been trying. They've been trying to keep their nose clean. They've been trying to do better, work harder. Trying to be better. But it doesn't work. There's no fix. It doesn't clean the conscience. And you're weary. Then you're ready for Jesus to say, as he does in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Come. As he says here in verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just like the fact that there are no spiritually well people, just those who think themselves well. So there are really no righteous people, only those who think themselves righteous. It's as if in Luke especially, the word righteous is almost always put in air quotes. The righteous the so-called righteous, those who think themselves righteous, but they're not. The righteous don't think they need Jesus, don't think they need repentance, and Jesus didn't come for them. Do you hear that? You who would like to join in 
on the Christmas spirit, he may not have come for you. Why did he come? I didn't come to call the righteous, the self-sufficient, the self-reliant, those who don't think they need a savior, those who haven't yet come to the end of their rope. I didn't come for them. I came to call sinners, sinners. Those who would say, yeah, that's a fitting label for me, sinners, wrongdoer, messer upper guy or girl. Go ahead, put, put that label on me. I will claim it. I know it. That's step one. Jesus in Luke 18 gave us a parable about these things. Interestingly, the parable is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And Jesus told this parable, Luke tells us, for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Pharisee, he prays at the temple and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, he was there praying as well. He was standing afar off. And he beat on his chest and simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. That's all he could say. And Jesus said, that man went home justified that day, not the other, not the righteous, quote unquote, the one who knew he wasn't righteous and begged God for mercy. Are you ready for Jesus? Well, he's there for those who have nothing to offer him of their own doing. Isaiah 55, back then God said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy my wine and milk without money and without price. If you're thirsty, and if you admit you have no money, you are fit to come and drink and eat and be satisfied and filled. It's without money and without price because Jesus would pay the price. That's what the cross is all about. You might, you might wonder, where's the cross in all this? Christians are all about the cross. I see it all over, the sign of the cross. Well, it is central. It's essential. Jesus, from this story in Luke 5, would eventually go to the cross and be raised on the third day. And that cross would be a payment for sin. He would die in our place. He would die in the place of all those who would ever come to realize they're doomed without him. All those who would come to realize they can trust in nothing of their own doing, but must trust fully and completely in what Jesus did. There's a hymn we like to sing from time to time, Rock of Ages. It says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. 
Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my fears, my tears, forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Well, this is how we enter in. And this is only how we enter in. In Monopoly, you can sometimes pass go. But becoming a Christian, you cannot pass this. There is no other way in. You must begin by feeling your utter need for a Savior. Would you enter in like that today? Would you come to feel that you're at the end of your rope? It's there at the end of the rope that you find a Savior who's perfectly strong to save and sustain you. Now, from one angle, this is not where we remain as Christians, this idea of utter dependence and and miserable sinners being that we are. There is that. It's true. We... I'll talk about that in just a second. But there's also a call to repentance, right? Levi wasn't the same guy once he followed Jesus. Jesus does call all of us to follow him, not just enjoy his forgiveness. So from one angle, the story doesn't end there. It didn't end there for Levi even on the first day as he began to worship and introduce Jesus to others. But from another angle, Christian, you need to hear this, especially if you've been a Christian for a good long while now. You never come to stand upon a different basis for your salvation than this. It's never grace plus something else. It's never that the gospel is kindergarten and then we move on to calculus eventually in the Christian life. All growth is simply standing on and living out the gospel that we first came to believe. B.B. Warfield, that old Princeton theologian, he said, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we're acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we can't be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe It's just as true after we've believed. It'll continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him ever alter. No matter what our attainments or growth in Christian graces or lack thereof, it's always upon his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. And we do rest. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is why he came. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we celebrate. Not just family, love, presence, peace. Not just a Savior's birth. But one who came to call sinners to repentance, to give them grace, and for them to join him 
in celebrating that salvation and disseminating that salvation to others who haven't yet come to know it for themselves. Well, let's pray to that end. Oh Lord, we ask that you would make us happy, saved people. Where it's needed, Lord, we think of David's words in Psalm 51, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Lord, may we never be used to it. May we never be complacent about it. And as we're moved to celebrate others' salvation and our own and to continue to celebrate it, as we're awaiting the day when we will celebrate our salvation and your victory in a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, may we desire for others to join in. May we share this great news with others, especially those who need it most. May we more be like our Savior who calls us sinners to repentance for our good and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and respond.
You could be seated. In the arms of our dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. What's that mean? Well, just an old way of putting that in Jesus there is everything we need, everything satisfying, everything worthy of our allegiance and our affection and our attention. So whatever you leave to come to him, you can leave it in faith that you come to something far, far better. In the arms of our Savior, there are 10,000 charms. You can't get yourself ready to come to him you must simply acknowledge you have no way to get yourself ready. All the fitness, all the readiness he requires is for you to feel your need for him. So perhaps today, for the first time, you began to feel your need for him and you began to gaze upon with you know, spiritual eyes, gaze upon a Savior who's enough for you, who is salvation to you. If you're somewhere in that process, Chase mentioned this earlier, we'd love to visit with you. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We would love to help you. We'd love to answer any questions that you might have about this Jesus. If you're tuning in online, use our email address, info at dscabq.com. And if you're in this room, I'll be up front after the service. Others will as well, and we're here to visit with you to counsel you and to pray with you however you'd like. Let us know how we can help. Well, we have Christmas Eve services coming up. Many of you have already signed up for one of our services, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock. Unfortunately, all the registrations for this room are filled now, uh, but we do have two overflow rooms where there's still space available. So you can register for that on our website, either 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock in an overflow room. Uh, or tune in online. Again, 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock, both of those services will be streamed. We'd encourage you, if you're not showing up in person, to take advantage of one of those with your family, perhaps even friends, um, if you can do that while still following regulations. We'd encourage that. Well, in light of this glorious Christ and his gospel, the good news, listen to this from Ecclesiastes 9 7 which bids us farewell. It says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. He's approved of it because of Jesus. Amen? Amen.